today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Yesterday we had uh, Chris Murray on the program, who of course is the outgoing city manager for the city of Hamilton. He's uh, heading down the road uh, to Toronto to take on the same job with the city of Toronto in uh, just a few weeks. But it leaves a gap here, obviously, and in, in many people's minds, uh, a big gap. Who's going to take his place? Well, we want to talk about that. Let me bring Laura Babcock into the conversation, the president of Power Group, uh, to give us her take on this. Laura, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. It's my pleasure, Bill. This is a, this is a big a loss for the city. I mean, I, I, you know Chris Murray. I've known Chris for many, many years. Uh, but aside from that, uh, th- th- there's, a, there's a resume here and I think a CV of accomplishments. Uh, and and there was a, something about this guy, I think the personality, he seemed to be the right guy at the right time for this city after some rather tumultuous city managers uh, and, and some rocky, rocky times uh, from, uh, I guess, amalgamation right till today. You know, Chris has a lot of attributes, and I have been critical of some things, uh, namely the cultural the sense of the culture at the city and those results back from those cultural surveys under his tenure were not good at all. They were pretty brutal. So, I mean, he wasn't, you know, nobody's perfect in their jobs, but what he was extremely good at was his temperament. Uh, his temperament, I would think, was probably his greatest quality in the sense that he could get Hamilton through some very raucous debates, some very difficult projects. I mean, he first sort of came on the scene, at least in my world way back when I interviewed him in the Laircast years ago, um, when he was doing the Red Hill. And we had at that point, as you recall, Bill, uh, the city was very much divided. There were people who cared so much about it that they were actually living up in the trees. There was all kinds of stuff going on. And here was this man who could manage those diverse opinions, those different groups and bring everyone through it. He had a, he has a fantastic temperament. You know, here's here's a fun fact about that. I don't know how many people know that. Uh, he was initially opposed to the project uh, when he was a city staffer. He didn't think it was a very good idea to go through the, the, the Red Hill Valley at all, but he was given the task by the city and simply said, okay, that's the job I have to do. Okay, and he jumped in and did it. Well, and that says so much about him, right, is that... Um, and people may have liked that quality and they may not like that quality, but what he was able to do was he was a, a very, very good, if you will, bureaucrat in the sense that he would, he was a, a civil servant. He would take the job that was given to him by the governance body of the city, uh, and he would manage it. He would execute on that. And, and he did it very, very well. And when you think about the fact that, I mean, most political bodies are not known for their temperaments, right? They're known for their, you know, their dogma or their soapboxes or their grandstanding or their hyper-rhetoric. Hamilton Council, I would argue, is particularly, <laughs> particularly known for its disruptive rhetoric and its ability to put itself into problems that no other city would even consider. There's one of those going on at the moment, and I've done some shows on. Uh, I mean, Hamilton Council finds problems where there aren't any, and where there are solutions, they can go to 53 votes on it. So, I mean, Hamilton Council is known to be particularly hard to even understand what they want, let alone execute on it. So Chris Murray was exceptionally skilled at sort of seeing past all of the drama and focusing on what he needed to do and his team needed to do. So, yes, it is a big loss for Hamilton from that point of view. If He was almost like a council whisperer. He understood what they wanted, and he had the temperament to be able to not get dragged into the drama and get it done. That being said, though, uh, you made the point that Hamilton has had a lot of different city managers, and you mentioned some of them sort of more disruptive. I think back to the Doug Lychecks and to some others, um, and it's really always been very interesting to me as a communications expert, the dynamic there. What does council want? 
uh, what kind of city manager do they need, <laughs> right? And where does the city stand right now? We are not where we were when Chris Murray became city manager. Some of them is due to his uh, management and leadership. Some of it is due to council. Some of it is due to natural um, things that are happening in the economy and our and our position and our multimodal location and all the rest of it. And a lot of it is due to citizens and their activism and their and you know just rolling up their sleeves and making the city work. So, but we are not where we were. This is Hamilton's decade. And who do we need as a city manager now? And I think that that is a fascinating question. So I put it out to social media to get people's take, you know, on who do we need now and who's right for the job. And, and it's been a pretty interesting conversation. Well, and, and there are a number of names. I mean, I guess we'll bump in a few of those. But let me let me go back to, to maybe the elementary question here. I mean, were you caught off guard by this? I mean, having said all we've said about Chris and, and the role that he played here, and like you say, there's like any report card, there's good and bad in that. But uh, I, I got to tell you, I was caught off guard by the fact that he was leaving. Uh, and and then you start to to look back and say, well, maybe it was because of this, maybe it was because of this. I mean, he told us yesterday he just thought it was time to move on. And and you have to ask yourself, well, why then? Uh, you know, we, we know that uh, he doesn't have a rock, a, a fabulous relationship with some people on council. Uh, he's had a, a somewhat of an acrimonious relationship with a couple of the mayors that he's had to work under. Uh, and you wonder if that's a factor in this decision. I think also uh, probably those things, and and you know hindsight's twenty twenty. I can think of some times where I've run into him and observed who he's been <laughs> meeting with and things of that nature. So I mean, you can start to kind of think to yourself, huh? Uh, you know, how long has this kind of been in the in the ether? But that being said, that's just all you know, fun speculation. I think I think what makes sense, uh, if I were to come up with a theory, is that. Because he was able to not only wrangle, you know, uh, and get things moving in the city, but also because Hamilton now is being seen as a success to many. You know, it's, it's unfinished, but it, we certainly have a different perception. I can tell you, as you know, Bill, I'm in Toronto uh, many days of the week, and the perception of Hamilton is very different than it was even five years ago. He can't take credit for all of that, but it does make him much more appealing a hire to a bigger market like Toronto when you appear to be the city manager of sort of an up-and-coming success story. So from a, just a purely strategic point of view, if you're going to make the leap, you want to do it while, while, the, while, the, while the promotions are good, while the spin is good, while the story is you know, well, Hamilton's a hot commodity. You never want to stay in the ring too long. You want to get out when you're at the top of your game. And so if he's looking for, a, you know, a bigger challenge uh, in a bigger market, this makes perfect sense for him to leave now while he appears to be on top of a city that is, uh, you know, on its way up. Yeah, but you know that from your work with Power Group and the many clients that you're dealing with. I mean, if you see something positive going on, you want to look and say, okay, why is that happening? Who's there? Who's pulling the strings? And, right. and obviously they're going to start looking at people that work in the city like that. Right. You get headhunted. Now, I don't know if he was headhunted or the job came up and he decided to put his name in. But, you know, five years ago, would the city manager of Hamilton be, you know, a, a top candidate for the city manager of Toronto? I'm not quite sure. Uh, but now he certainly would be, and not just because of his skill set, but because of the overall product of the city of Hamilton. And you asked if I was surprised by it. Uh, I remember when the news broke because I heard it from a couple different people simultaneously. It's how it usually works on different platforms. <laughs> you know, my phone started to go off. I thought, ah, oh, something's going on. Uh, and, you know, and, and I wasn't, first I heard that he was, uh, you know, there was gossip in some newsrooms in Toronto that he was in the sort of top pick, uh, you know, uh, and then it was, oh, no, actually he did get the gig. And then, you know, and then there was a reaction. I, I let a lot of my Hamilton clients know and they're like, wow, that is kind of big news. That, that shakes things up. That's a big deal. So I didn't, I didn't know he was going to do it, but as you and I are talking about it, 
it makes absolute sense when you've got a top performer uh, in a top performing product. Of course, other people are going to try to either poach you or you're going to now be a candidate for positions that maybe in previous years you just weren't qualified for. Let me ask you about timing here, and not his, but I'm city council's. Uh, Mayor Eisenberger suggested that council's going to, well, they've already appointed an interim guy, but they're going to appoint somebody else. Uh, there's an election coming up in just a couple of months now, October, middle of October, Laura. Is this a job that this council should be doing, or should they wait until after the election to appoint a city manager? It would be really nice if they waited until after the election, because this is going to be a pretty exciting election. I mean, we've got some open seats. You've been watching Hamilton Council longer than I have, Bill, and you know that. I mean, can you think of a time when there's been maybe so many opportunities in play for new blood on council? Uh, not not just that, but I mean, you know, if, if the Ontario election is, is any indication and some of the stuff we're seeing in the rest of the country, this seems to be a year for change. At least the, I don't know how extensive the change might be, but you can't preclude that could happen in the municipal election. I concur. And and I expect change. And that's why I think it'll be exciting because for too long we've had just these kind of wash and repeat elections, which is why uh, we have such a low voter turnout municipally. It's, 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 it's tragic. Uh, so I'm hoping that this election, because there are some open seats, because there are a lot of people who heretofore have not been politicians that are kind of angling and some big discussions are happening right now for new candidates to try to get in there. There's a real possibility of an upset and a different a different face on council and a different composition. And so given that there are going to be different people around the table, I think that it, it is much better advised for council to wait until they know what that composition looks like. If they've already got an intern city manager and you've got a very you know, strong team at the city in terms of the staff, they know what they're doing, they can kind of handle a, a bit of a pause without a new leader, better to get the right person in place. You and I have seen the high drama and the high cost that comes when council picks somebody who's too, too uh, you know, strong-willed or, or, or uh, independently-minded. They don't like that or they haven't traditionally. Uh, you know, we've seen it where they've picked other people who didn't, they didn't quite do their research on, it seems, right? Uh, and so I would prefer that council really takes the time to do this right and they allow for the new voices on council to have input on this because the kind of city manager that the old council might not, you know, align with might very well be a perfect alignment for the new councillors. And the other thing, too, I, I just want to also layer into this. I mean, they actually do their research because they haven't in the past. They have to make sure that they have the voices of those new leaders around the table in terms of what they want, in terms of a manager, but also they need to look at the city. I mean, what does Hamilton need? You know, we where are we as a city? What is our opportunity strategically? What kind of city manager does a city that's kind of walking into its decade on the cusp what kind of city manager do you need to leverage and exploit that momentum for the city? Uh, that's that's the biggest issue for me. It's not just how they get along with council, but are they the right city manager for the exciting opportunities that we have? I don't want a placeholder there. You know, we need somebody who can really rock it out because the rest of us are in the city. So where do you go then? I mean, there are a number of candidates already on staff, and we mentioned Mike Zagarek's the finance guy, and he's the acting city manager now and will be, I guess, until a new one's selected. you got to figure he's a leading candidate. There's some other folks in the senior manager team or do they look outside well here's something that hasn't come up unfortunately in any of when i put out the surveys who do you think lots of names are popping up not women's names other than people trying to you know poach other cities that have women leaders there uh i think that the city should look at their staff internally and also their women's staff because we have 
uh, a pretty abhorrent lack of female leadership at that top senior management level. And, you know, it's not about quotas. It's about the fact that the research shows that when you have women in leadership positions corporately or publicly, you do better. So I, I would really love to see them take a serious look at whether or not they're considering the women leadership internally, but also in an external search. I think it's always nice to look internally. There are people who know the city well and, ha- and are probably better at what they do than council lets them be. Brad Clark, um, and we showed this on the O Show at the Urban Exchange recently, Bill, he talked about the fact that in his experience, city councillors would try to get staff to water down their reports and things so that it fit into their councillor's narrative, not the sort of best research. And I think we want to have a city manager who's able to bring staff's best minds to the table. So there might be some really great people on the staff that we don't know of yet because they just haven't had that opportunity. Um, but also, I, it's always good to look externally, you know, make it more competitive. There might be people out there who have done fantastic things in other cities. Uh, or maybe have some background in Hamilton at one point and have gone elsewhere. Let's look at them. What have they learned? You know, we only know as much as we know. So if we can get someone who knows something different from a different frame of reference, why not listen to them and give them a shot? Have you got a name in mind? <laughs> you know, I, uh, don't you know, I don't tell me you haven't first. speculated about this. <laughs> <laughs> well, let, let me say this. I mean, there are people have thought for there are uh, among the chattering glasses. <laughs> people have thought that Paul Johnson's been been groomed for this in one way or another through his different uh, roles within the city. People also, of course, Jason Thorne, the name has come up a lot yeah. in terms of his role that he's had lately. Uh, Mike Kirkopoulos, you know, was uh, a key comms guy during a past administration and went out to, I think, be the city manager of another town of Lincoln, I think it is. Yeah, he's in Lincoln, you know, maybe, yeah. Yeah, maybe he's got, you know, that combo, you know, and so, I mean, those are the names that have been popping up. Um, but again, I'd like to hear some women's names from the city staff and from an external search. There are a lot of talented people out there. The question is, what is the best fit for the city's potential? Um, Gil Penalosa, when he was on the Urban Exchange Bill, he said something so critical that I'll never forget. He said, don't compare yourself, for instance, to another city that does it as well or not as well as you. Compare yourself to the very best. Uh, you know, why talk about Mississauga's cycling paths when you can be talking about Copenhagen? Always put yourself, you know, look higher. And so what I would like to see is the new council decide on someone who is not going to be a placeholder, who is not going to be an appeaser, who is not going to just keep things going. I, I'd like to see someone who has the experience or the drive to really move the city forward with council. Well, yeah, and the two names, I mean, we're just about wrapping up here, I guess we're short on time, but uh, Jennifer Keysman, of course, who was uh, mm-hmm. uh, a planner for the city of Toronto, has left that position. I think she's working at the U of T, but uh, I'd make that phone call if I were on the the selection committee. And, and Kirkopoulos is another name that I wrote down yesterday. I mean, I, actually, yeah. I should ask Mike, he sits right near us at the football games tonight. Uh, his season tickets are right near ours, but uh, there's you a know, guy that he's never lost his Hamilton Bill. connection. Uh, and, and I already have, Bill. <laughs> so who knows? Time <laughs> will tell. Mike, a while ago. Uh, listen, um, I think that anyone who is in the business of city leadership, city management planning, of course this would be a key plum job. Uh, I think that people like Jennifer, like Mike, um, why wouldn't you want to look at Hamilton? It is, it is a city that is on the cusp of something exciting, and I find the best leaders are the ones who do it for the for the sake of the goal, for the sake of the challenge, right? For the sake of the opportunity, not necessarily for the money. And I, I also have Jennifer on my list in terms of an external person with a lot of good experience that would that would fire things up. So again, this should be the next council, though. You and I, I think are in agreement on that because some of the people I know who are running for the next council would want someone very different as city manager than some of the people who have been there for decades. Laura Babcock from Power Group. I know we pulled you out of a meeting for this. Laura, appreciate it. Uh, have a great weekend. 
My pleasure. Thanks, Bill. Happy Canada Day. You too. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Noon today at Queen's Park in Toronto, uh, the Premier-designate Doug Ford becomes the Premier Doug Ford with a swearing-in ceremony on the grounds. It's going to be an outdoor ceremony, and uh, the weather, I guess, is obviously going to cooperate. They've got about 1,000 chairs set up on the uh, the lawn there for uh, the uh, festivities later on today. Uh, he will also, we're told, announce his cabinet, as is usually the custom, the day of the swearing-in. We don't know who that's going to be. Uh, they've been pretty good about keeping that pretty silent. Uh, the government has not even started to uh, get working on, on obviously, the number of things that they had promised to do, because they're not technically the government yet, but they've already made some announcements, and uh, there's already some pushback on some of those announcements. Joining us to talk about this is Crystal Avela, Social Science and Humanities Research Council postdoctoral fellow in history at the University of Toronto. Crystal, thanks so much for the time today. How are you doing? Uh, thanks. Thanks for having me. Are you uh, you going to Queen's Park today? It's the ticket. No. In, it's the ticket in Toronto, isn't it? No, no, I don't think I'll be attending, but I'll certainly be uh, certainly be observing. Uh, talk to us a little bit about about the expectations. I, I saw an interesting survey uh, that was done. I think it was by the Compass people, anyway, in Ontario. Uh, and basically, the overwhelming majority of people that they surveyed said they have very low expectations of the Ford government. And this this was this was a I guess a province wide survey. Uh, it's it's not really a ringing endorsement, I guess, as they head into office. No, I think well, you, part of the issue is that under our current system. You know, you can win, you know, a government and even a majority government with, you know, 38, 37, 40 percent of the vote, which means that by definition, you know, the other parties together got, you know, 60 percent of the vote or so. And given that Ford was probably particularly disliked by the other two parties, say juxtaposed to Andrea Horwath, where a lot of the polls during the election indicated most people would be, you know, at least at least um, neutral about her result. A lot of people either really like Ford or, or really dislike him. So I think that's what's leading to this kind of, this early discontent even before he's, he's kind of started governing. What about the team behind him? Let's talk about that. And I guess we're going to get some faces and names about this later on today, Christo. Uh, but, but, I mean, the speculation has been out there since the day of the election, of course, and there's some names that I think are probably shoe-ins to this cabinet. Uh, let's talk a little bit about those. I mean, people like Vic Fideli and, and obviously Christine Elliott, you would think, and, and uh, Caroline Mulroney are probably three names that are going to be near the top of that list. No, I would say so, too. I mean, I think at the end of the day, given how close the leadership contest was, specifically with Elliot, I mean, you know, in, in many ways, Ford was very fortunate to have won, given that he didn't win the popular vote, nor the, the most amount of ridings. He kind of won on the, the kind of very complicated point system. So it would be it would be very, um, um, you know, foolhardy to not include Elliot and to not include Elliot, I think, in a in a high profile manner and same thing with 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 Mulrooney although she maybe underperformed expectations during the actual leadership contest she's relatively young she's got a you know a, a profile she kind of builds these links to the kind of more traditional you know corporate conservative base uh through her family lineage um so i think having her included Vic Fideli likely should be included as well he was the interim leader during the party he didn't end up running against Ford he kind of um you know, seem to, to steady the ship at least a little bit after the whole Brown fiasco. So I think you'll see those people included. You'll also, you know, potentially see uh, a new wave of conservatives uh, included as well. Many of their, their younger mo- kind of millennial, um, you know, uh, new, new, new MPs. They have a, you know, have a whole swath of new MPPs from, from, from in the conservative caucus. And you'll probably see some of those people. They might not be in the, you know, the, the plum positions, but, you know, look to see some, some young people uh, within uh, within the within the cabinet. 
You know, that's one of the, the subtexts of this whole event uh, over the last uh, couple of weeks, I guess, since the election that hasn't gotten a whole lot of publicity, but it's it's noteworthy, I think. There are a lot of new faces at Queen's Park, not just on the government side, but on the opposition benches. Uh, it's it's not usual for that to happen in elections, but there, there really was a, a, a changing of the guard in, in a number of different writings. No, certainly. Well, you have to say, whenever you see, um, you know, a new government come in, um, obviously, that there by definition is changed because there's so many people losing seats, and in this case, in particular, the Liberals went from a majority government to losing party status. So you have you know dozens and dozens and dozens of MPPs who who lost their seats, and the vast majority of those people are new politicians. Now, from the Conservative side, a good chunk of them actually are former federal Conservatives that that lost in 2011 or sorry in 2015 and have kind of rejuvenated their political career by by going provincial. But the reality is you're correct in saying that through the NDP and, and the Conservatives, there's, I think, 74 new MPPs at, at Queen's Park, which is, which is well over half the, half the legislature. So, you know, there'll be uh, some learning curves both on the government and opposition side. How industrious and how bold is this government going to be? I mean, they've got a big majority. We know that. But as, as you've just articulated, Crystal, I mean, when you crunch the numbers, uh, more people voted not to have Rob Ford as premier than those who did, yet he's got the majority. That's just the way our system works. And, I mean, you know, even if you don't like it, I mean, you've got to accept that that's, that's the reality of it. But at the same time, does that give him a mandate to do whatever he wants and to fulfill a lot of the promises that he talked about during the campaign? Well, you know, I think that's an interesting point. I think in terms of, you know, obviously, like, in, in uh, the rules of the game, the constitutional rules, he can, he can make changes whether or not he promised them, as we see the Liberals federally said that we do electoral reform, we don't have it. Kathleen Wynne never talked about privatizing hydro, and, and she did it. So Ford certainly isn't necessarily bound to the rules of, of what he said. The, re- the problem with that, however, is Ford, see, Ford didn't really have a lot of promises. So for the promises he made, I think he has a pretty solid mandate to implement them um, because he was very clear about certain issues, you know, uh, very clear about sex ed reform, you know, and things of that manner. Uh, he has the mandate to do those, whether or not we disagree with those things. On the other hand, Ford didn't really run as a, as a staunch economic conservative. He didn't run on Hudak's platform. He didn't run on Harris's platform. Uh, he didn't run, you know, the platform you might see from the Wild Rose Party in Alberta. The reality is he ran and on, a, on a promise to not cut a single public service job. He ran on hiring more teachers, teachers and nurses. And he ran on, you know, he didn't run on, for instance, you know, attacking labor, labor rights in any systematic fashion. So I think Ford has to govern uh, or should be governing as something of a moderate because that's what people voted for. So when Ford um, got a lot of those kind of swing voters, that 9 or 10% extra bump from former liberal voters, I don't think those people want, you know, a radically conservative direction. And even if he has the technical ability to implement that, I think that could be politically uh, disastrous for him, and it would leave a lot of voters feeling betrayed. Is it is it important, though, for any new government, and obviously in this case the Ford government, to at least pick maybe one and say, this is our signature policy, this is the, the thing that's going to define us? I mean, it seems to be at this stage anyway, uh, the, you know, abolishing the cap-and-trade program that Premier Wynne had put in place. I mean, I think so. And whether or not you disagree with that, the reality is, and whether or not you think ultimately you know, the Supreme Court, you know, Trudeau will be able to implement a federal plan. That's, those are whole debates for, for later. But again, you're right that Ford didn't have a platform. A lot of people, left, right, and center, criticized the lack of clarity in their, in their government, in their approach to the election. But on a few key issues, 
cap and trade being one of them, certain tax reforms being one, uh, you know, another. Ford did make clear policy statements, and I think any government, you know, has to, as early as they can, try to keep some of their key promises, which, you know, are important to the base and are important to give kind of early credibility. And I think especially with a, a new government that has so many new MPPs, giving a sense of momentum. You want to get something concrete done in your first X amount of days. So you can say, okay, here's how we do it. Now we just got to keep chugging along with our with our platform and our mandate. And I think something like cap and trade, again, a lot of people have said, look, ultimately Trudeau is going to force you to take something, so you might as well implement something that you feel works better. But the reality is that he certainly has a mandate, and I think he has a party that desires uh, the end to a kind of any kind of carbon tax or cap and trade system, and I think that's what you'll see implemented. Other things include he has said that he'd legislate back and uh, you know, call uh, university uh, workers on strike. And he said he would try to find a way to uh, yeah, get gas prices down. So those are some early things he might do, and you might see him call the legislature back early. Some maybe some people are saying in early July um, to to achieve some of these early goals. And of course, the, the I guess the the wild card here is is the unknown, and 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 not nobody, not us, not the government knows exactly what's going to happen. I mean, you were talking about. Some of the things that Kathleen Wynne did, or Dalton McGinty did, or, or a number of other people, like Mike Harris, for that matter, uh, you know, they get into office and all of a sudden, hey, wait a second, you didn't say you were going to do that. And I, I know that the cynic in us wants to say, well, you know what, that's their hidden agenda. But I mean, stuff happens, and 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 in the, all of a sudden they have to pivot, and we don't know what's going to happen. I mean, this is a guy that, uh, let's face it, Crystal, his political experience right now is one term on Toronto City Council. And and now he's going to be the premier of the province. And this is a pretty rocky time in the province's history to be taking over the ship. No, I think that's a fair point. I mean, I think, you know, you have to be contextual. I think when, you know, when Kathleen Wynne privatized Hydro, there was no fundamental change in, in, in Ontario that justified that decision. I do think it was fair to say that was an utterly hidden agenda. And she was extremely cynical to not run on it. Yeah, she was and looking for money. That yeah, was what it came yeah. down to. And I, th- and I think if you look at Ford um, and you see him make job cuts, I think the the unequivocal nature of his promise means that he can't break that or otherwise it's a hidden agenda. My inkling, from a personal perspective, is that he wants to do some of the things that Hudak tried to do, but was smarter than Hudak and realized that you can't actually say you, can, you want to do those things. So we have to be careful about that. But you're right in noting, for instance, that this is a, a tumultuous time. There are issues with trade with the United States. That, 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 that we don't know how those trade talks are going to go. If they go in a certain direction that, you know, creates new tariffs that is hard on Ontario industry, that could affect financial policy. Conversely, if there's an economic upturn uh, and, and, and things go better, what does Ford do? Does he invest in public services like he promised? He said he'd hire more teachers and nurses. Or will he simply, you know, pass those on in corporate and, and upper class tax cuts? We don't know. But you're right in saying that the government can only plan so much. The difficulty with Ford is, is that he didn't even really plan at all, um, at, at least according to his, his 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 public election platform. Well, yeah, and he did talk about you know putting the sign up that Ontario is open for business, etc. Which again, it was another one of the slogans he ran on. But uh, I I tell you, as as a taxpayer, I I don't envy anybody taking over the, this role as premier of this province, whether it's Doug Ford or anybody else. Given the the economic situation, the you know the the tariff thing that's going back and forth. I mean, a lot of this stuff here. We talk about him taking the the helm at the ship right now, but I I don't know if the rudder's working right now because a lot of stuff are gonna things could happen here that he has no control over at all. But he's gonna have to react to them. Yeah, well, I think that's an important point. You know, the reality is that, you know, the premier is a very powerful person, especially a premier in a majority situation. They have a lot of leeway, but 
you know, with even even a prime minister in a majority situation, you know, there there are global forces at play: uh, economic forces, social forces, cultural forces, environmental forces that 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 can dictate, you know, what 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 happens in a lot of ways. And and the premier has a role to play in all that, but um, at the end of the day, um, he is he is a human being like all of us. And the reality is that he will be guided by these these broader trends. So you could see issues like that. Now, of course, there are there are ways in which Ford has tried to make conscious policy decisions. And you know, for instance, he's he's made a clear effort to say he's not going to hire. Uh, he's put a hiring freeze on many aspects of the public service. Now, this is going to have broad, hard-reaching effects. I mean, one of the issues in Ontario right now is we have really lax enforcement of our labor standards. Workers are getting killed and maimed at the, at their jobs. Um, this is something that I don't think should be happening in 2018. Yet, uh, Ford's uh, hiring freeze has effectively stopped the Department of Labor's ability to actually enforce uh, new new employment standards and existing employment standards. So in that sense, you know, he is making decisions that, you know, are going to affect people's lives and, you know, might lead to, to, to real consequences. And I think, the, you know, we have to realize that as well. There's another big difference, I guess, that everybody finds out once they assume government at whatever level uh, is, uh, well, it's that old cliche, you know, that campaigning is easy, governing is harder, uh, that he's going to find out from some of the things that he may want to do when he sits down with staff and say, you know what, you can't do that, or the lawyers or somebody. Uh, you know, John Cretchen said he was going to abolish the GST, and he won that election handily. And then, you know, the, the staff said, you know, you can't really do that. Oh, okay, well, I've changed my mind. I'm not going to do that. And on and on it goes, depending on the circumstance. Uh, Pierre Trudeau did the same thing with wage and price controls. Never going to do that. Don't you dare worry about that. And what did he do about six months after he got reelected? Boom. Yep. So we don't yep. know yet. It's the unknown, I guess, that with any government that's that's got people on tender hooks. No, I think that's a good point. I think, you know, for instance, one of Ford's promises was he was going to fire the, the board at, at Hydro Ontario. Yeah. Um, and whether or not he can or can't do that, there are debates about that. But people said even if he can, there's a $10 million, like, parachute fee to fire the person. So it's like, will he do that? Does he actually achieve anything by making the $6 million man a $10 million man just to get rid of him? We don't know. Like, for instance, the cap and trade, that might be something he wants to do. That might be something that his party wants. That might be something that the people who voted for him and his party want. But if the alternative is something being imposed from Ottawa on Ontario that might be more stringent or that might be that gives Ontario less flexibility, then Ford might feel that it's 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 in his best interest to to say look at the cap and trade system that exists and tweak it in a manner that, you know, the, the government's lawyers and the government's experts say would be uh, constitutionally Fee, uh, deemed, deemed adequate to the extent that Trudeau couldn't uh, find a way to impose something extra upon him. Because at the end of the day, with something like this, um, I think it's pretty clear that, that you know the federal government probably would be able to claim at least partial jurisdiction. So Ford would be advised, I think, to, to realize that you know, this, this is a, a policy dead end. But of course, not everything you do in government is about policy. Optics matter too. And Ford might think, look, if Trudeau imposes a carbon tax on me, I'll just politically benefit from it anyway. So he might see the advisability of fighting a battle he knows he can't win in a technical sense because he knows he will win in a political sense. So, I mean, that's, that's also the realities of governing as well. Uh, there, you know, we, t- we talk about governing and campaigning as two solitudes, but the reality is that governing is a consistent effort of campaigning 
because there's always another election, even if it's a few years away. What about that federal-provincial relationship? Uh, historically, it has not gone well. Uh, you know, when, when uh, of course, Stephen Harper was elected, we had Dalton McGinney here as the premier. And, uh, they did not get along well, although they, they I guess, at, at some point decided to work together, especially to get us through the recession. Uh, but but it has it just seems to be this acrimonious relationship. Does does Doug Ford have to make Justin Trudeau the bad guy uh, to to justify a lot of the stuff he's doing? Because some premiers will do that, obviously. I mean, I think that's a, a an, an interesting point. I think you're right in saying that there are times when you know sometimes the issues become so significant that there are some cooperation, like the, like like you noted the 2008 kind of recession necessitated cooperation between the federal government and the provincial government to deal with you know, the potential collapse of certain industries, you know, the auto industry, for yeah. instance. But, um, you know, and here you have seen, you know, NDPers, conservatives and, and liberals all kind of, you know, align behind Trudeau at federal and provincial levels to say that we don't support Trump's attacks on, 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 on the Canadian economy. And, and Ford himself has said in that aspect, he does support Trudeau. So that could be, you know, a, a way for them to cooperate. Maybe there'll be something that'll let them see, you know, each other as uh, less as enemies and more as a, as, as you know, fellow, uh, as colleagues, who knows? But but you're right in noting that I think for Ford and Trudeau, despite the fact that they're actually quite similar, they're both men of um, of great privilege intergenerationally. They're both um, you know following in their father's political footsteps to a certain degree. Yet they're very different, and they're perceived as very different. And I think that for Ford, one of the things that will help him is to juxtapose himself to Trudeau. And for Trudeau, it may well help him in 2019. Uh, when he's running for, you know, the, the very, in, in very seat-rich Ontario to, to juxtapose his, you know, um, ostensibly progressive uh, record against, you know, what, 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 is, what could be happening in Ontario in a year and a half time, in a year and a bit's time. And that's, that's like the political gambit here. I don't think either of, that, either of their supporters don't like the other person, so it could be very difficult from a political perspective. But, of course, sometimes the way these things work is, is that they fight in public, uh, you know, part of the political show, but work together, you know, on the very technical, boring kind of incremental matters that happen behind closed doors. And most importantly, um, you know, government intergovernmental relationships are never just about the two people at the helm. Maybe Ontario's civil servants and maybe uh, uh, federal civil servants will have a good working relationship and, and that could smooth things over as well. Interesting times, and it all starts at noon today. Christo, thanks as always. Great talking with you. Thanks for having me. Take care. Christo Avalos from the University of Toronto. And as we mentioned, noon today, uh, the new premier sworn in at Queen's Park. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We want to pick up on uh, the, the cap-and-trade discussion that we started in the last hour. Uh, as you know, Doug Ford's going to get sworn in at noon today, become the new premier of the province of Ontario. And he says that uh, his first order of business is going to be to abolish the cap-and-trade program. And he's going to, uh, I guess, sue uh, the federal government, we know, uh, for the, uh, well, the, the program that the, the prime minister has already laid out right now uh, about uh, taxing and carbon taxing and things of this nature. So it's, there's going to be a battle going on here. Can he do it? First of all, legally is a question that seems to be open to debate. The opposition parties obviously spoke a lot about this during the campaign, but both the uh, Ontario NDP and uh, Mike Schreiner, the uh, head of the Green Party, have already written letters to the Premier saying don't do this because of the cost implications. So uh, it seems as if we're going to have a, a, a problem right off the top here. Let's get Henry Jasekin on the conversation, political science professor at McMaster University. Henry, how are you doing today? Hi, how are you doing, Bill? Good. Swearing in day, always a big day. Uh, you know, hope springs eternal, brand new government and all this sort of stuff. 
But uh, it looks like Doug Ford's, uh, well, he's, he's going down a pretty controversial road with this cap-and-trade program. Well, I mean, yeah, that's the thing is that sometimes uh, simple ideas, when you try it, when a new government comes in, they find that uh, they're very, very complicated. And this is a lot more complicated than he thought just getting rid of it. I mean, there's estimates that uh, just to get out of this program, uh, in, uh, you will, the government will have to spend initially at least $3 billion, which I'm sure wasn't uh, part, of, part of his plan. Then, of course, we have a whole industry that has grown up around the Ontario, uh, the Green Ontario plan, where people are able to get, uh, you know, rebates for doing things like uh, putting in better windows and refitting their houses, having solar energy. Uh, that is, you know, that's a lot of money that was allocated for that, that came from those industries who were, in a sense, fined for having uh, too, mon- too many pollutants. And, the, and so, this 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 into this uh, program created businesses it created a lot of people you know a lot of uh, jobs for people who put in these uh, you know these upgrades on people's houses and so we're going to lose money there uh, people are going to lose their uh, jobs uh, particularly p- putting in win- new windows uh, so they're you know they won't have uh, a job that'll uh, allow them to pay taxes to the government that's a loss to the government and uh, business, some businesses may went, go out of business, and certainly businesses will have be making less money in this area. Uh, the association that represents people who put in windows has already talked about that. And, and, th- and that's before we get to any type of fight with the federal government over a carbon tax. And God knows what the legal fees on the Ontario side, uh, some people estimate it'll, it'll cost, the legal fees will be over $3 million. I think that's come out of the, from the Ford people. And then they're, they're, most lawyers believe they're going to lose that battle, and we're going to have a carbon tax, uh, which isn't as good as the uh, cap-and-trade system. So it's a real mess, I think, and I think uh, people are going to be take a look at this and really ask the question, just because a politician makes a bad promise, should he keep a bad promise? Well, and uh, with all that in mind then, Henry, where do they go on situations, and how problematic is it for a new government to say, yeah, we're not really going to do that. And we've had examples of this in the past. Uh, you know, Bob Ray, when he won government in 1990, I mean, one of the key elements of his platform that year was that he was going to, you know, make auto insurance public. And uh, he didn't do it. And uh, much to the chagrin of people within his own party. But I remember talking to Bob about that about a year after. And he said, he said, the industry guys told us and our lawyers told us you can't do that. There'll be a pushback. So he says, I just forgot about the whole idea. Dalton McGinty said he was going to tear up the contract for the 407. And, and the lawyer said, you can't do that, sir. Uh, it's going to cost you way too much money if we can even find a loophole in it. So what's promised during the campaign sometimes is a little trickier to actually implement. Uh, is, is Ford going to find that when he finally sits down with staff and says, all right, uh, Mr. Premier, I know this is what you said, but here's the reality. Well, I'm sure the staff, I'm sure the permanent staff, uh, particularly the permanent financial staff uh, in, in the government, is going to say, okay, you can do this, but this is what it's going to cost. And it's going to be billions of dollars. And uh, much, you know, that was not something that was ever talked about in the campaign. And he's going to have to make a decision if he tries to keep this. Uh, keep this. There is going to be, you know, it's going to cost billions of dollars. It's going to have a negative impact, impact on the Ontario economy. And at the end of the day, people are going to have to pay a carbon tax to the federal government. So it's going to be a real, real mess. And you're absolutely right. It's very hard when a new government comes in and it wants to rip up an agreement and a program that a previous government has started. It is very, very hard to, 
to rip that up without horrendous costs. And, of course, we also see it in the U.S., um, you know, two things with Donald Trump, for example, on the whole trade thing. It, the, the Americans are really going to take a big hit in various places uh, for, all, for these, uh, uh, you know, these uh, tariffs that... Uh, that uh, that Ford, sorry, that the Trump is putting on uh, aluminum and steel and maybe some other things, and and they and other countries know how to really hit them hard, and uh, especially China. China's China's going to, you know, basically come close to destroying the Iowa economy because it said we're not going to buy any more pork or soybeans from Iowa, and that's that's the uh, biggest industries in that state, and and China is the biggest uh, the biggest buyer, and you know what are they going to do with all their pork production and uh, and soybeans there and i mean so it sounds good to say we're going to get tough on our trading partners and we're going to put tariffs on things and we're going to demand that they change their ways well it's one thing to say that the consequences are very different well and those consequences i guess are the things that are going to have to be dealt with and, and i guess evaluated at this stage but uh, does he risk alienating some of those those people in his base if he abandons a promise like this well certainly a lot of business people did support Doug Ford we know it. the business community basically did want to support Doug Ford. Now they the business community is oftentimes is not united on this. So some people who aren't in that how in the business of uh, doing these retrofits on houses, uh they may say, well, I don't really care very much about it. But if you're in that business, if you're in the business where you of installing, uh, you know, these energy efficient windows and, you know, and doing uh, other things to houses to to reduce the amount of energy you use, then then uh, those people are, you know, have to look and say, hey, this guy, you know, I may have liked him in principle, but now he's costing me money. He's he's costing me maybe my business. I'm I have to lay off workers and workers who might have supported him said, hey, I, I supported him, and now because of his policies, I've lost my job. And this so these sort of things are coming. They come slowly, and it, it takes a while for for pe- to dawn on people because the, the big problem with the population when they go to vote is they're not very good at understanding the consequences of of simple statements that politicians make. And it's only later on after the election they say, oh, my goodness, I didn't realize I was getting into this. Now, politicians are supposed to, one of the things they're supposed to do in an election campaign is point out the consequences of different policies. And this and this was not done in the last election. I think you you might, you certainly, some people might say, well, you should have blamed uh, Trump, I'm sorry, Ford for not tell, pointing this out. At the same time, probably we should have said the opposition parties, including all three of them, maybe they should have talked about this a bit more. And uh, and, and, and uh, they didn't do that. So maybe all four parties have some blame here. But, but the people who are going to lose their jobs, the businesses that may go under or have, have reduced business are, are going to be unhappy. And, of course, where is the fu- new finance minister going to find these billions of dollars to get out of this co- system? Now, that's a question that deserves to be answered. Henry Jasek, uh, political scientist. Professor McMaster. Henry, thanks as always. Great talking with you. Have a okay. great weekend. Okay. Have a, enjoy your Canada Day, Bill. I plan to do just that, and you too. So what are the implications to this? I mean, from a, a financial standpoint, I think Henry's painted a pretty sharp picture here as to what the government may be facing right now when they start punching this around. But uh, there are other implications, obviously, if uh, Mr. Ford decides to move ahead uh, with abolishing the cap-and-trade program and then challenging the federal government, of course, with their carbon taxing program. I want to bring Dan McTeegan to the conversation. Dan, of course, is a former member of parliament uh, up in Ottawa and now with uh, GasBuddy.com. Dan, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. 
It's good to be here. Thanks for having me this morning, uh, Bill. Dan, we're just going to get thrown right into the middle of this debate now between uh, soon-to-be Premier Ford and, and the Prime Minister about carbon taxing, cap-and-trade, etc. Uh, there's got to be a cost to this. Well, there's a cost, but I wouldn't suggest that the cost is being will be borne by the government. It will, in fact, uh, be a savings to consumers. Uh, we can all argue uh, whether or not uh, the policy in it itself, when it came out in 2015, 2016, was legitimate because it had never been discussed uh, in the previous election, but you've basically put a lot of consumers on the hook to the tune of some $8 billion. And some of that, of course, is our businesses that will have to have paid, uh, you know, uh, half a billion bucks in buying emissions credits. But much of that money didn't stay in Ontario. It was, in fact, sent to California or to Quebec to offset the uh, the requirement. That's the way the cap-and-trade system works. So, you know, <laughs> I find it interesting that people are suggesting this is going to be a major cost to the provincial government. Far be it for me, uh, as a former Liberal of 18 years as a member of Parliament, to defend the uh, Conservative government in Ontario. But the reality is that this may be a lot easier than uh, than is set out. I mean, it's nice to say that uh, uh, this program will end, you know, uh, uh, rebates on windows and uh, roofs and other things that uh, might be there. But frankly, all this money came from consumers to begin with. And I think uh, it's very clear at least it was to me, and I think to many people who voted, uh, that uh, transferring money from hardworking uh, uh, individuals to uh, pay for certain programs, not just the retrofit programs, but also massive fat subsidies for people driving Teslas, just didn't pass the smell test. At the end of the day, though, Bill, uh, you know, this wasn't about reducing emissions because even Bonnie Lissick, the Auditor General for Ontario, said this would have very little in the way of effect in terms of reducing or for the government of Ontario to reach its targets, which I think was uh, something like uh, half of what we produced well be before uh, 1990. So, I mean, it's a pretty lofty goal. And, of course, it didn't take into account that uh, provinces like Ontario already had a major advantage short of coal plants. A lot of our energy was provided by hydroelectric, as we know, just down the road in Niagara, uh, Pickering, uh, nuclear, uh, Bruce nuclear, uh, as well as, of course, natural gas, which had become more and more common in the early 90s. So we never got credit for that. And we were achieving a goal, I think, at the end of the day, which would have led to a lot more dislocation, um, perhaps as many as a third of emitters leaving the province of Ontario, heading to the United States. And that would have had uh, significant economic impacts, far greater than the uh, few hundred million dollars that may have to be rebated to some uh, to some companies who bought these credits. Pretty easy campaign promise for Mr. Ford to make, though, wasn't it, really, when you look at it, Dan? I mean, what was that survey? I, 75%, I think, of people that were polled thought that carbon taxing was just a, a tax grab by whatever government we're talking about? Yeah, and to some extent, they're they're correct. Um, I mean, when you think uh, companies like Enbridge sent me a bill saying, uh, you know, you owe 80 bucks uh, as part of the carbon tax. It's not even money that they've had to spend or outlay. I've paid for it as a consumer, not them. But I think the public really was of two minds on this. One, they had not heard about it in the last provincial campaign, as I mentioned it uh, before. And two, they had not really experienced it. Now they're starting to see its effects and saying, you know, an extra thousand bucks a year is simply not possible. Uh, I can't afford to pay for this. Uh, and while it's true, some people may be able to take advantage of retrofits for windows. Uh, that may be a small minority compared to those who are having to pay. I mean, at the end of the day, this is not about you know, suddenly magically creating money uh, to pay for programs. It's about one group having to subsidize another. Uh, and at the end of the day, if the mission is to reduce the emissions and that doesn't happen, 
then uh, this is really you know a, a, a flight of fancy and perhaps uh, uh, you know a, a, a move towards uh, uh, you know perhaps a, a waste of public money. And I think that's where the public is come at this with seventy two percent. I think is uh, suggesting that uh, they were opposed to uh, to the idea of a carbon tax. With what's happened here, and with uh, let's assume Mr. Ford does move forward on this, notwithstanding some of the protestations from the opposition parties, uh, the, the federal conservatives have got to be watching what's going on here, Dan. And I mean, there is a federal election coming up next year, and I would think that uh, that they're just musing there now about the idea of making this a, 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 an issue, like a wedge issue in the next campaign, the federal campaign. Well, I don't want to put my old uh, political hat back on. I'm, I'm pulling you back <laughs> into the arena, Dan. <laughs> You've got one party saying no, and I think the majority of Canadians are on board with them, and three parties saying yes, uh, they're going to have to split that, uh, that vote. Uh, you know, this is, uh, this is very... I did an interview this morning uh, uh, in, uh, in, in Halifax, and I think many of them are really smarting over the idea that between now and 2022, should the federal government proceed with its backstop uh, of a carbon tax, you would be paying an additional $1,100. And many are suggesting, even the federal government itself, that the $50 a ton, which works out to about, uh, I'd say, about $0.12 cents a litre for gasoline and about $0.15 cents for diesel, uh, even that $50 a ton will not meet the uh, climate change obligations we signed uh, at Paris three years ago, and that it's going to have to be more like 100 So now you're talking 2000 to 2200 for average Nova Scotians and Maritimers, this is from a province that saw its major potential for the energy's pipeline to uh, to be stopped by protesters in the federal government, uh, not willing to understand and recognize that there's a quid pro quo here. And I think people would have probably accepted that they're going to have to pay a little bit more to be on board with climate uh, objectives, but at the same time, they saw a major infrastructure program, by the way, which would have benefited Hamilton, given the amount of steel that was required to build those pipelines. Mm-hmm. But I digress. The fact is that uh, there's no win here, and I think uh, ordinary people are sitting down uh, trying to go over their budgets, are not amused by the fact that uh, there's really no benefit for them, especially in a province like Nova Scotia, where there are no emissions to, to speak of. Uh, i got about a minute left here, but uh, one of the other promises, obviously, was to lower the price of gasoline. Uh, if he nixes or when he nixes this cap-and-trade, does that get him his $0.10 cent reduction? Uh, well, no, it wouldn't. That would be 4.6 cents, so he's still off 5.4, and I think that uh, he'll probably have to look at the other side of things. Uh, we know that the previous provincial government, uh, both I think that of uh, Dalton McGuinty, raised taxes uh, 8% back in July around this time, 2010, so eight years ago. Uh, it's likely that he's going to have to uh, take some of that, you know, that increase, which today on, at $1.37.9, high end here in Hamilton, uh, low end $1.25, $1.27, you're looking roughly uh, at uh, at uh, using some of that HST money, that 8% HST money, mm-hmm. probably about half of it to make up the difference. At the end of the day, though, I think the, uh, the province is, uh, is still going to be ahead with economic uh, uh, fallout, which I think will be very positive, especially when you consider that uh, things like home heating fuel, like natural gas, gasoline, and diesel, will not see the impacts uh, that we're seeing elsewhere and make us a little bit more competitive with our uh, our American friends to the south. Gasbuddy.com, by the way, good page to go to as you're heading out uh, for the holiday weekend. Dan, thanks as always. I really appreciate the time today. My pleasure. Happy Canada Day weekend there, Bill. And to you too. And to everybody. Uh, we have to do a short time out, and then we're going to come right back. Uh, yeah, just amazing how the price will just kind of shoot right up here as you go to fill up the tank for the long weekend, uh, which I guess we're kind of getting used to, but that still doesn't make it right, does it? The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.